Welcome to yet another of the Short Coot Street podcasts, which Jonathan Strawn and I have been doing since forever, since March, it seems. This is Gary Wolf, and today I'm absolutely delighted to be able to catch up at least a little bit with the multiple award-winning um, author, editor, narrator, radio host, uh, the the well-known and uh, well-deservedly known Ellen Kushner. How are you today, Ellen? I'm, I'm great, actually. I'm back home in New York after having spent six unexpected months uh, in Arizona, which is where Dilly and I were staying with friends when the uh, when the pan- pandemic hit. And you, well, and you only got back after the lockdown had happened then. Oh, way after. Yeah, yeah. No, I've only been back a, a, a few. We got back in um, late August. Oh, okay. I've, I haven't traveled anywhere. I've not been in an airport center, so I have no idea what that's like. Well, we were on our way to ICFA, and I literally... I literally, our bags were in the car <laughs> an hour before we were going to the airport. You know, I was supposed to be cleaning out the fridge at what? our friends. And instead, I was like, oh, I'll just check my email one more time. And boom, there it was that the conference had been canceled. It was I had the, it was yeah. yeah. Well, I, I give you credit for waiting and that long with that much faith that it was going to happen because I was sitting here like on the edge of a cliff watching my friends fall off one by one and thinking probably mean-spiritedly, what's the minimum number of actual friends who are going to this that'll make me want to go to it? I know. I, and I felt like I had to hold up the side. You know, exactly. That exactly. I, I, felt, I felt for everybody who was not going. I was like, but but I shall go. And, and I'm so glad I didn't. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm grateful uh, to ICFA. I'm grateful to Worldcon. I'm grateful to World Fantasy. I'm grateful to ReaderCon. All the places that canceled on their own, so I didn't have to make that decision. Yeah, no kidding. Well, meanwhile, are you able to get any reading done when you were in uh, Arizona? I don't know what the COVID situation was like there. By the time you got back to New York, it was much better. Obviously. Yeah, it's, it's crazy that even though my life in New York is people, 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 because you can't walk on the street without passing people. Right. Um, but it's the numbers are way down here. I mean, and one reason we put off coming back from Arizona was I was really scared, um, but they got them down. And at this point, even though I occasionally, you know, walk past an unmasked person or something like that, I think, you know, the the percentages here are a lot lower than in Tucson. Tucson, of course, you know, you're home on the range there. Our friends oh, yeah. have a place outside of town. I mean, I saw another human being once every 10 days or so. So even though their numbers got really bad, I never saw anybody. So it was OK. It's very strange. So I did do a lot of reading there. It was like uh-huh. I rediscovered reading while I was there, I have to say. Um, I just kind of needed to cocoon and snuggle down. And I, like, ordered children's books from used bookstores because I couldn't go to a used bookstore. I mean, those first few weeks were very, very strange. And I just knew exactly what I wanted to read. And if it wasn't there, I would order it. And I was very, very happy being able to do that and got back my um, my habit of reading, which yeah. like a lot of people these days, I had kind of lost. But you were looking specifically at children's books. Why? Because they're my favorites and I love them. Um, when I when I say children's books, I don't mean little kid books. I mean the books I grew up reading over and over and over and over. And the best of them are great books. They're really good. They're oh, they are. Yeah. You know, they get they got nothing to blush for. Um, and I loved reconnecting with them and seeing that they were even better than I thought they were because now I'm a grown-up writer and I can appreciate what the writers are doing. Um, it was a real pleasure. 
Well, are we talking about the old classics like E. Nesbitt and Francis Hodgson Burnett or like more recent classics? You know, Nesbitt and Burnett and people like that um, and Edward Eager, which my friend had a complete set of, um, oh. are absolutely in my panoply. Um, my childhood was that, but also I had a big thing for Joan Aiken, especially her Dido Twite books. Oh, yeah. Blackhearts mm-hmm. in Tattersea and and uh, Nightbirds on Nantucket. I adored those, and I, I took Dido Twite as my spiritual master. She's this kind of raffish cockney orphan who speaks an idiolect all her own and is completely fearless. And I really kind of wanted to be her. And uh-huh. I discovered that there were all these subsequent books that I hadn't realized she'd written uh, about the same characters. And so I just got my hands on as many as I could. And some are not great and some are wonderful. So that it was a nice combination of rereading old favorites and then reading new to me books in, in, in a in a stream that that I really loved. I can imagine. I know a number of people. Well, OK, a number, maybe two uh, who thought the well, the Willoughby Chase, the Wolves of Willoughby Chase, they thought that was the only one. And then years later, discovered all the rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of bizarre that Wolves of Willoughby Chase is part of the series because Dido doesn't show up in it. And she's mm-hmm. the protagonist of all but the first two books. But yes, those those were huge for me. I really, really love them. And Joan Aiken, it, those books are so loony because they're what I have learned. The, do you know what the French call um, alternate histories? No. They're called, um, wait, oh, am I going to get this right? A chrono, this is in French, a chronologique. They're, they're, they're uncron, boogers. I used to know yeah. this. Non- chron- yeah, without chronology. Without- yeah, but, but it's not a, it's a, a chronologique, something like that. Oh. And it took me a while. I was so proud of myself for learning that word when I was there. Anyway, you hear it a few times and go, what? What does that mean? And then you realize, oh, it's French for alternate history. So they're alternate history, but by the end, she's just mixing up the centuries and, and going <laughs> crazy. And they're, they're just, goofy and she still pulls it off at least if you have a a taste for that sort of let's just jump off the tracks and see what happens kind of. which is the sort of thing that seems to me more writers are willing to do today probably because of backgrounds like that but um you know the distinctions between fantasy and science fiction and 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 horror are just are barely there anymore i mean there, there are pure versions of each but there are writers who just do everything at once and, and I, it has to do with what did you grow up reading and loving well, are there contemporary books that you think are in that tradition? Um, I'm not going to answer that because it's not on my list. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> actually, I mean, if we had half an hour, I, I'd have to think about it. But um, I just want to mention some of the other books that I read. Okay, sure. Um, like another, quote, children's book that is brand new that I read, I knew I was going to love, and I, oh, my God. I don't know if you know the work of Francis Harding. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I admired the hell out of her and I know her a little bit and I think I saw her in London when she was writing the new book Deep Light and she was talking about how hard it was to write and I'm like hell yeah girl every single book you write you become an expert on some incredibly bizarre thing in this case it's undersea creatures and bell diving so that you can ring these crazy changes on it and deliver it to us with incredible pacing, incredible yeah. characterization, I mean, I, dialogue. I mean, there is nothing she slips up on. She is a master of everything. And she writes them, for me anyway, reasonably quickly. I just, I, I, 
bow to her. And I everything she writes is so good, and she gets better. What, what, what's the new novel again? Because I've not read the new one. It's called Deep Light. Oh. And it has a giant squid on the cover, or maybe it's an octopus. I don't know, a tentacle being. I'm sure, yeah. I, mean, the, the, I remember she did a one of them fairly recently. Was A lot of it had to do with Victorian paleontology, as I recall. And it was, again, one of those things where now that we can do this, you're reading some historical detail and you decide to Google it. And and she was dead on in every case. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, she doesn't miss a beat. She also um, I mean, she did 17th century politics a couple books before that. And these are all things that she genuinely loves and is genuinely passionate about. I mean, she doesn't just pull them out of a hat. Right. But, you know, she's a person with a lot of interests. Um, if I can have a sermon moment, this is one reason I, I tell <laughs> young writers and young students, furnish your brain, like don't major in writing, major in something weird so that you've got stuff in your head that is of interest that you can then put into your books, mm-hmm. you know, have interests or become a magpie and read everything. It's interesting how many, uh, yeah. Uh, young writers. I mean, I, this, this happened to me. I never taught creative writing because I don't know how to do it myself, but how many young writers that I've met think that that writers spend all their time reading other writers or reading worse, reading what they perceive to be their competitors? And when I talk to people like on uh, on these chats, it's it's really interesting how much of a variety of non-fiction, non-fiction uh, fiction writers actually absorb uh, and the most unexpected things as well. Yeah. Yeah. Not, and not just nonfiction, but uh, um, I mean, I travel all the time or did uh-huh. until hmm, very recently. And to me, it's almost like the travel is the nonfiction for me. Um, yeah. But it, it is embarrassing because I know, you know, the nice thing to do when I when one is having this conversation with you is to talk about all the books by one's contemporaries that, you know, and friends that you've just read that are so brilliant. Right. But I'm not as well read on my contemporaries as I should be. I'm just not. Nobody Fortunately. is. And nobody. I mean, very few people. Uh, make the effort that younger writers think they make to just read everything that's out there now. So it's as though you're, you're, you're some, in some kind of competitive race. And I actually don't know any serious writers who think that way. Yeah, but I think that there's also a social grace to reading your um, contemporaries. So I know that all the writers who are in, as it were, the same class, you know, kind of yeah. came at the same time, they read each other, they encourage each other. And they do, you can see that they're in some ways reacting to each other's work. Um, and, uh, I, we did that. We did that yeah. when we were twenties, thirties writing. Um, it's not that I don't read anybody. And I mean, one way now that I get to read, there was this weird dearth of anybody sending me books to, to blurb for a hmm. while. When they did, they were like depressing. I didn't like them. And I thought, oh, yeah. I, I would like that. Um, and all of a sudden I, I see be back on, on the radar and I just got, um, C.L. Polk's Midnight Bargain, which everybody's been talking about so much, I thought it was already out, but it's not. Um, and this drew me into a uh, Twitter conversation with her about Silver Fork fantasy. Huh. She said that that the book is a Silver Fork fantasy. She considers it a genre, and I thought she'd made it up, but no. I, okay. Do their Go research. ahead and explain it. Yeah. Oh well, let me just tell you quickly that okay, um, yeah. that that the new book Midnight Bargain is a um, it's basically a Regency, but it's not just a Regency with magic book. She has invented an entire world uh, for all this to be taking place on, but with Regency manners. It's it's a just a giddy fusion. I'm really, really impressed <laughs> with what she's doing. 
Um, but it is, you know, at at heart, at base, a uh, you know, a Regency novel with you know that's got fusion all over it. You know? <laughs> But so so why Silver Fork fantasy? I thought, oh, well, you know, I said fantasy of manners because that was based on, you know, comedy yeah. of manners. Maybe she means like silver spoon fantasy. Mais non. There was a 19th century genre known as Silver Fork fantasy because it was early, early 19th century, she really? says. Um, and it was basically middle class readers uh, reading about the nobility and the aristocracy. Ah, okay. So it was kind of a social fantasy. In other words, these are not necessarily supernatural stories. It's just kind of a... Uh, yeah, forgive me. I, I said fantasy and I misspoke. Um, Silver Fork novels. And oh, she okay. Them, I, I, that was me. I dropped well, now, now that you've Now that you've said it, you have to invent a genre called Silver Fork fantasy. Well, I think we already are writing it. You know, it's it's stuff... To me, it's a, it's a cooler name for what we were calling fantasy of manners. Yeah. Um, she might say that it's it's a little more defined by the 19th century um, for her. I don't know. We should go back on Twitter and find out. C.L. Polk, P-O-L-K. Um, but it's that, again, that notion that after you had the big bow wow of Tolkien and his imitators, and we all mm. thought fantasy was, you know, quest fantasy, that uh, really kind of my generation said, but, but we like, you know, later stuff and Regency, and can't we just yeah. do some based on later stuff and um that was very much more often about social interaction than it was about worlds i think that's yeah and and, and i think the other thing that uh, writers like polk or, or another writer who's used the regency period is zen cho with the true queen oh. and uh which are a lot of fun and it's just looking at that whole world from a completely different social perspective and i think it reinvents the world it makes it seem new to all the rest of us I love those books. Yeah, she's definitely another person that I will drop everything to read. Um, the other thing that I'm doing is reading aloud. Oh, yeah. Speaking of fun with Zoom, I put together a weekly Shakespeare reading Zoom thing with some friends, but one of them was in London, and one oh. of them was in Maine, and I'm in New York, but I was in Arizona. And this is the kind of thing that you would never, we could have done it, you know, five years ago, but why? You know, you had yeah, your friends exactly. over, you read Shakespeare. But we were all isolated anyway. We desperately needed distraction, and you could do it on Zoom. And it's turned into this tight little community of about 12 people. And for me, as a writer, I used to know my Shakespeare and love it and, you know, sit and read it without moving my lips. And mm -hmm. that, that girl is gone. You know, I haven't done that in years. And and it's been you know, sort of slowly the sands of Shakespeare have trickled out of my brain. And so to engage with it every week and hear the language and read it yourself and go through every single play is just an incalculable joy and really feeds in the same way that rereading my favorite children's books do mm -hmm. rereading Shakespeare and getting it back in my head is phenomenal just phenomenal and and um also obviously has that that social element as well we've all gotten to know each other better um we love and trust and make jokes with each other and know that we've got this rendezvous more or less once a week so it's, it's an appointment where you read shakespeare to each other or oh no no we do the plays like a oh you do the whole place okay so a that's... different person picks the play each week and it is their job to cast it which is work 
but it also means that they get to give themselves the lead. So you basically, you pick a play that you want to read the lead in and uh-huh. then you cast everybody else. Um, that sounds great. Including first messenger and stuff. So it's, it's, it's a chore. No, it's absolutely wonderful. We read a play aloud every week. And then the weeks where we take off, because some of the people can't be there or whatever, yeah. we're like, okay, well, we won't do a reading next week. We'll take next week off. But does anybody want to read The Importance of Being Earnest? And then, you know, the- one, I was, my next question was going to be, where do you go from there? You could go on to other Elizabethan melodramas. You could go on to Oscar Wilde. You could go on to Noel Coward. You know, I, my sense is that, that we're going to do the, the big stuff. And in fact, I'm dying to do stuff like The Duchess of Malfi. <laughs> on the off weeks, Man, it is so easy and fun to read um, something, you know, written after 1880. I'm, it's, it's really great. I could imagine. Well, the last thing we talk about on these little chats are, are what, you're, what you're doing. What do you have out in the world or out uh, in the next year or so or things that you're doing? Because I know you're involved with the University of Glasgow Fantasy Center uh, keynote address for which congratulations. That's a big gig. Yeah, I'm, I'm appalled and delighted. They keep telling me, you can do it. We know you can do it. So <laughs> I'm going to do it. No, it's, it's an incredible honor. And I think one reason that they picked me, I've spoken there a couple of times. So I know them. They know me. Um, but also it's that connection that I have with um, with Scott's uh, folklore uh, mm-hmm. with, by having written Thomas the Rhymer. And this wonderful new center in Glasgow is also, um, it's meant to be fantasy, but fantasy not just writing, but folklore and music and everything else. So it's a wonderful way to tie them all together. Um, so what I'm actually doing is uh, working on my next novel, which I, I got a big um, big boost on um, while I was down in Arizona and had the, the time and leisure to think about it. Oh. And I did, um, I've got a story coming out that's kind of tangentially related to it in that Silk and Steel anthology. Um, uh-huh. It was like, like all, of, all these cool kids on Twitter were doing this, this, you know, uh, lesbian sword and princess romance stories. And I thought, oh, well, they didn't ask me. <laughs> turned out that they were just too shy. And then they asked me and I had a really good time. So it's coming out sometime late this year, early next. I think it's still called Silk and Steel. So I'll check it out. And is there, uh, well, they're, they're always, I, the Tree Montaigne is done now. Is that right? Yeah, we did um, four seasons, and it is now complete. So people who are waiting for it to complete, be complete now have no excuse not to e-read it, audio, listen to it. Um, and, 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 and and I it. Actually, this summer I had to do a little reading from it, and I went back and kind of was reading it going, I don't remember any of this. Like, we had to read it so fast that now I want to go back and reread it. Well, um, it sounds like a lot of fun. We're Okay, we're, we're way over our time, which is... Of course, to be expected, and we could go on for an hour. And maybe we will, and you people listening to the recording won't get to hear it. I don't know. Uh, but again, this has been Gary Wolf. We've been spending more than 10 minutes with the wonderful Ellen Kushner. And thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you, Gary. It's always fun to talk with you.